it's there's no treatment for it you know we just assume that you know it'll go away with time you know have a cup of concrete harden up it'll be okay but it's because we never have really paused to think about what is happening in the brain and if we look a little bit deeper about what is happening we can find a way to potentially reverse it or to treat it introverts, extroverts, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Chelsea Heaney, and my guest today is a neuroscientist at the University of Tasmania. She is a director of the Australian Society for Medical Research, as well as Epilepsy Tasmania, and she was one of the finalists for Tasmanian Young Australian of the Year in 2016. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Leela Landowski. (laughs) Thank you for having me, Chelsea. No worries. Thank you so much for being here. And I want to say right at the top that uh, science is not one of my areas of expertise. Um, So I did reach out to my cousin who actually also works in neuroscience um, to get a couple of ideas of questions or topics off her. So if the questions sound really smart, um, they were from Kat. So thank you, Kat. Um, your help. Um, I just thought uh, I would credit her at the top. <laughs> I, I, lo- I love it. I lo- I'm looking forward to seeing where this conversation goes. <laughs> well, I guess to start off with, when did you know you wanted to be a neuroscientist? Mm. Well, I can pinpoint the exact moment I wanted to be a medical researcher. Um, yeah. And that was when I was seven years old. I was on a, a school trip and basically some of the class went fishing and so I went fishing with them and I happened to catch my first fish and I just remember holding this disgusting slimy fish and it had its cloying slime sticking to my fingers and I just remember thinking oh you know I heard shark liver oil capsules and like that sort of thing and I thought yeah. maybe, maybe this fish slime has some sort of you know magical power in it maybe it has some sort of therapeutic benefit and I just remember thinking in that moment you know maybe when I grow up I can try and find some sort of fish extract that might help people a bit, it's a bit far-fetched but at the what? same time what seven-year-old thing <laughs> Well, but you know, like I be, before that moment, I didn't know what I wanted to be, and I think yeah. I, I, I really frustrated a lot of my teachers because we'd have you know the day in class where we we decide what we want to be when we grow up and yeah. we dress up as them, and I never could answer that. I always was like, I don't know. So it was it was good to finally have a moment where I I knew, and amazingly, I stuck with that. So yeah. I, I ended up, you know, doing a degree in medical research and, and ended up doing a, a PhD in, in neuroscience, which is what, what I'm doing now. I'm a neuroscientist full time. Yeah. And that's where I am today. Yeah. So when did you, you, know, you knew at seven that you wanted to be a medical researcher. Mm-hmm. When did that turn into neuroscience as a specific speciality? Mm. Well, I remember I was doing a third year unit, neuroscience unit, and I didn't even want to do neuroscience, to be honest. I just did it because uh, I couldn't really choose out of a couple of subjects and one of my friends was doing neuroscience, so I did it. And I was sitting in one of the lectures and the researcher was presenting their exciting new results and I remember looking at it and I, I kind of interpreted their results in a different way. So I went to them and I said, hey, I have this idea about your research, you know, I have this different hypothesis, can we go and test it? 
And really that's um, where I, I did an honours project to answer that question. And that's ended up in neuroscience purely by chance. I didn't, yeah, I never intended to be a neuroscientist. Yeah. And um, so how, I mean, I guess you sort of answered a little bit there with, you know, your honours and, and PhD, but how do you train to become a neuroscientist? You know, I as far as I'm aware, you don't have to train to be a medical doctor first. It's a very different type of doctor. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. You can go into neuroscience from a whole range of different approaches. Mm -hmm. You could do a, a, like a Bachelor of Science, for example, and do honours and a master's and a PhD in neuroscience. And it's when you do that PhD yeah. that when you become, that's when you can really call yourself a neuroscientist. You could, I did a Bachelor of Medical Research, for example. Mm -hmm. um, you could do a Bachelor of Biotechnology. And it's all about that PhD which dictates whether you um, are right. a neuroscientist or not. Yeah. There's no yeah. degree in neuroscience. <laughs> And um, what what does a neuroscientist actually do is, I think, a big question. It's a big question because every day is so different. You know, yeah. before we started this chat, I was saying that I was having a, a desk day and doing a lot of admin yeah. and trying to catch up on all the paperwork. But when I'm in the lab, it might be I'm trying – one of the things I'm trying to do now is develop nanotechnology. So I'm literally in a chemistry lab mixing a bunch of chemicals together kind of hoping that they turn out as expected. Another day I might actually be um, hanging out with rats. You know, that's right. that's part of um, part of medical research. You might be um, sitting under a microscope looking at um, tissue from a brain, for example, and looking to see how it has changed in response to a treatment. You know, yeah. Every day can be so varied. Other days you might be teaching, you might be giving a lecture. So. Yeah. We have a lot of variety in every day. Yeah. And what do you think are some things that um, people maybe, like, if you if you say to them you're a neuroscience, what do they maybe assume that that means that they get wrong, if that makes sense? People usually assume that I'm a neurologist. They always get that confused. Or neurosurgeon. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I don't work with people to understand their to give them a particular diagnosis or I don't chop open a human brain to pull out a brain cancer. My yeah. job is to understand fundamentally what is happening when someone has a disease or fundamentally trying to figure out how to cure a disease with the brain so that way a doctor like a neurologist or a neurosurgeon can then use that information to help people. So we're yeah. kind of like at the, you know, at the pre-clinical or the pre-hospital stage yeah. to figure out how to solve a problem and then the doctors go and implement it and yeah. use it in the hospital setting. So do you have much face-to-face -face with patients or is it all that beforehand stuff? It, yeah, no face-to-face no -face with patients. It's all before that. Yeah, that's cool. And um, you mentioned that, you know, it's sort of like understanding everything that's happening in the brain. Is there much sort of cross crossover with psychology in that way? Really not a lot, no. Yeah. It's it's kind of interesting. We psychology is is quite different from neuroscience in that we're trying to figure out what is happening on the cellular level, like how yeah. cells are changing in response to a drug or in response to stress or, you know, in response to sleep. Whereas psychology is more the, you know, broad sweeping behavioural changes that you might observe in one population or another. So that doesn't yeah. really necessarily look at what's happening on the cellular level. And I think that's why I really like neuroscience as opposed to psychology. It's like we're looking and finding, you know, the mechanism behind 
why our behaviour is changing rather than just the behaviour changing and not knowing why. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. And I wanted to um, ask as well, you mentioned that, you know, on some days maybe you're you're looking at a brain and figuring out different ways. So my first question is what was it like the first time you cut into a brain? Um, quite surreal. And you don't expect, yeah. you don't expect it to be as soft and squishy as it is. You know, it's really like jelly. It's the consistency. Really? Hmm. Um, And it is very humbling and very surreal, Mm. you know, being in that situation. Uh, But it is also incredibly exciting knowing that you can potentially take this, you know, this cherished piece of brain and learn something more about what happened for that brain to be the way it is. Yeah. And... My sort of other part of that question was, like, I know that obviously, you know, people donate a lot of, some people donate their bodies to science after they've died and that's where you get those brains. But it just, it it blows my mind, like, because there's so many universities and so many hospitals all around the world that all obviously have, well, most of them have research departments and use, how many people actually donate their bodies to science for there to be that many brains available? Mm, yeah, not that many. Yeah. In fact, there's a kind of a, it's a lot of, for example, in medical schools, people will like learn how to, the, about the human anatomy from these, you know, people who have bequested their bodies or their yeah. brains. And there are really only a few states that are able to procure these bodies. Yeah. Um, and, and typically, like, they'll go from one state to another. So, like, for example, in right. Tasmania, we won't be looking at um, Tasmanian people. Yeah. We'll be looking at them from another part of this part of Australia just yeah. because, obviously, the risk that you might encounter someone that you know. Um, and that yeah. is can be quite traumatic. Yeah, that's absolutely fair enough. Um, and I wanted to ask about your current work that you're doing. So I said earlier you're at the University of Tasmania and you're currently working researching stroke and when people have stroke. So can you tell us a bit about that and what you're doing? Yeah, so I, I'm working kind of in two different areas, in stroke and also in fatigue. So in trying to figure out why we're tired for no reason. And in the context of stroke, um, you know, we've got this one drug to treat people who have a certain type of stroke and, like, only a very small proportion of people can actually benefit from this drug. But the thing is we've been trying to develop drugs for stroke for, over like, over 60 years and we've got this one drug. So, you know, it's kind of, I hate saying this, but it's been a bit of an abysmal failure. We've got all this time put into research and not much to show for it. But kind of we do. There's over a 1,000 drugs that have been tested that work in a Petri dish that cure a Petri dish stroke. Yeah. A lot that have been um, able to treat animals which have had a stroke, but they just don't work in humans. So I guess the question is why do they not work in humans? And part of that is because the way we test these drugs, it's, it's an imperfect way of testing it. So what I'm trying to do is to try and overhaul the way we test these drugs um, for stroke, so we have a better chance of them working in humans. So I'm not trying to I'm not trying to cure stroke. I'm trying to find a better way of testing stroke drugs, so we have a better chance right. of, of finding therapies that work in people. Yeah, and how do you sort of choose? I mean, 
you know, this is probably way over my level of science, but, you know, where do you sort of start? How do you go, I think this might work, so let's try this out? Where do you get those ideas from? Um, an amazing research team. Some of the some of our best ideas have been from, like, hanging out at the pub after work and just brainstorming. <laughs> <laughs> Which is actually how our fatigue project came to be. You know, we're sitting in the pub and we're well, talking. Because you're really tired and hungover the next day. <laughs> wondering like you know what is actually happening in the brain to, to make you feel tired for no reason yeah. and so you know we thought we had a little bit of a dig around about what research had been done and it turns out not much which is strange considering that we've all experienced fatigue you know, like for example when I say fatigue it's not just that feeling of tiredness that goes away once you've had a nap I mean like when you've had the flu for example and you know how you have that overwhelming lethargy and you can't get out of bed like that kind of fatigue. Yeah. People who have multiple sclerosis or any sort of like major disease will suffer from fatigue. If you've had chemotherapy, you have fatigue. And it's yeah. almost the most debilitating thing that you can have. And despite it being so common, like it's there's no treatment for it. You know, we just yeah. assume that, you know, it'll go away with time, you know, have a cup of concrete, harden up, it'll be okay. Yeah. But it's because we never have really paused to think about what is happening in the brain. And if we look a little bit deeper about what is happening, we can find a way to potentially reverse it or to treat it. So I guess if you can probably think of it like this. You know when you're sick and you're really tired and then suddenly it goes away and you're able to run around and do stuff again once the cold dissipates. So we've got this switch that makes us really fatigued and then it switches back off and we can go around and do our, go about our lives. But in people who are suffering from fatigue for an on, on an ongoing basis, like if you have chronic fatigue, it's like this switch never flicks back off. So you're stuck in this tired state. And we think that switch is in the brain and we're trying to figure out where it is and how to switch it back on. And there's a few ways that we might better do that, but we don't have an answer yet. But stay tuned and maybe in a few years we will. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, definitely let me know when you do so that I'm not so tired all the time. Um, I wanted to ask as well with working on, on strokes and with fatigue. Fatigue, you sort of said that, you know, you came up with the sort of research idea from, you know, sitting around the pub. But do your projects generally get assigned to you? Like were you told from the university, go work on um, figuring out how to treat strokes or or um, did you and your team sort of decide that that's what you wanted to work on? That's a really interesting question because um, I think you might assume that you get assigned. I probably would assume that. But the way it works is you have to come up with an idea. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, that could be in the realm of anything. But if you're working in a stroke lab, it's generally going to be a, a, a project about stroke. And then we have to submit this idea. We write a grant and then we submit it to a bunch of different places and we hope to get funding and then only after we get funding you, you know you can potentially go on and do that work and the main source of funding is the National Health and Medical Research Council for you know this sort of medical research that I'm doing and the success rate is less than 10% so there's a huge amount of yeah. great ideas that never get to be followed through simply because there isn't enough money for the, that work to be done yeah yeah um, and I mean, my, my next question, I think I should preface with saying this did not come from Kat because it's definitely not a smart <laughs> question. Um, 
Is it true or a myth that people smell toast before they have a stroke? Oh. <laughs> I think I've heard that before, but I don't know the science behind it, so I don't know whether... Yeah, that's <laughs> fair enough. By the way, there's no such thing as a dumb question. There's only a <laughs> dumb answer, which is what I just gave you. Sorry. I, <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't know. But I really want to Google it and find out. Right? It's just a constant myth that's going around. And every time my office at work, like, if the doors are open, you can smell the tea room. Mm -hmm. um, and every once in a while, someone will be cooking toast. I can just, no. can anyone else smell that? Or am I having a stroke? <laughs> I can say it's definitely not part of the stroke diagnostic guidelines. <laughs> is, it, um, is it fast? Is that? Um, the acronym for, for stroke. Am I remembering my first aid course right? Yeah. 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 Not that I can remember what that stands for, but I remember that it's the acronym. Yeah, that's right. So FAST stands for face. So you look to see whether your face might be drooping. Yeah. Um, the other A stands for arm, whether you have arm weakness. Yep. Um, S stands for speech. So you might have speech difficulty. Yeah. Um, and time. Time is critical. Yeah. Um, so, so if basically this one drug that we have, you need to administer it within like within six hours, best case scenario. And if you don't get that person to the hospital to have this treatment, you can't, you can't, they can't have it because the risk of a side effect is too huge. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Yeah. So time is very important. As soon as you recognise the signs of a stroke, you really need to get to the hospital as soon as possible. Um, and, um, you know, we spoke about you're at the University of Tasmania and you mentioned earlier you also do some teaching. Um, so what is involved with that? Is that, you know, giving lectures, running, tut uh, running tutorials or? Yeah, at this point I'm just giving some guest lectures and previously I've coordinated a bunch of units um, looking at um, dementia, basic neuroanatomy, yeah. the brain, that sort of thing. So... Yeah, so now my teaching load is only on in a guest lecture sort of context. Um, yeah. But that might change as time goes on. Yeah. Sure Do you enjoy it. teaching? I love teaching. It's so <laughs> exciting, like getting to see that moment where you, when someone actually it clicks, yeah. where they like get it, that is so satisfying. Yeah. And I also really love it when students get so excited about a topic that they kind of, you go on a tangent, like talking about something that's related, but not, but because they're so excited, like it's so fun to talk about it. So yeah. I really love feeding off the energy of students. And, you know, because these students tend on average tend to be like a lot younger than me. I, I <laughs> they have a lot more energy. They're not fatigued <laughs> yet. So. Yeah. It is really an incredible thing when you're teaching. Cause I, um, I used to be a swim teacher. Oh. Um, yeah, which was a lot of fun, though. People always used to tell me, like, you know, that I should go into teaching as a career. And I'm like, I have my kids for half an hour a week. That's enough. <laughs> <laughs> like, each one I get for half an hour, that's good for me. But, yeah, when you'd have a kid come in and, like, maybe they've, um, you know, gone up a, a couple of levels or something and then they see you at the pool and they're like, look, let me show you what I can do because they're Aww. so cool. Um, yeah, in that moment when you're teaching them something and, and they start to get it. Yeah, it's really cool. I did teach adults a couple of times and that was really cool because, um, you know, especially, you know, for swimming, which was what I was doing, um, it's a lot of like um, 
your muscle memory and so for adults that's already there a lot of the time and so when you like explain something in a way that they got and they were able to do it correctly um they were just always so happy and it was fantastic yeah and and not only that but you know you you they can communicate how they feel you know how excited they are that they've learned this thing but also they've gone through so much of their life not being able to do it that the impact of suddenly being able to swim is huge that is so exciting oh I love that I had a um a dad once who um I can't remember where he was from but they weren't from Australia and they were from a country where I, I think it might have been landlocked and so swimming wasn't such a big thing but his kids had grown up in Australia and his kids were learning to swim so he got swimming lessons so he could swim with his kids after their swimming lessons oh, um and it was so lovely that's beautiful yeah. yeah um and I wanted to to talk to you as well about I'm guessing that you get this a lot I'm hoping that you don't but you know it's the society that that we live in I'm guessing you get told a lot that you don't look like a neuroscientist is that something you hear is that um and how does that affect you if you do hear that um I yes I do yeah <laughs> yeah um but I find that certainly in in a field in my field mm-hmm. you know my colleagues know me so it's fine but when I'm meeting new people there's of, often um it's often like you have to prove yourself two yeah. times over because you don't fit the stereotype. And I think that goes for any um, any minority or, or women in, yeah. in the field where you kind of have to work extra hard to prove your worth. And I don't think that's okay, but it's what I'm no. used to. So yeah. it's, it's, it's just my normal, so I've, it's just the way that I operate, and that's okay. It's And hopefully it'll change and be better for the next generation because... You know, I find it frustrating that we still live in a world where where that is a thing. Yeah. But I know it takes time. Yeah. And in general, what is it like being a woman in science at the moment? You know, obviously you said, you know, you've sort of got to prove yourself again, but are there any more? Um, it's, so, it's so hard to talk about because you're like, there shouldn't be, there just shouldn't be blockades, but you just know that there are. So, you know, have there been times where you maybe haven't gotten something or somebody's spoken to you in a way or something that you're like, I think that's because I'm a woman or, you know, what's it like being a woman in science right now? I think it's a very mixed bag. And I think overwhelmingly the experiences are incredibly positive. Because that's good to hear. In, in biological sciences, so... Mm-hmm this sort of area that I'm generally working in, the majority of people in the field are actually women. It's just that there's less right. women in the higher positions. Yeah. So there's more than 50% women. I, I think it might be like 55% yeah. of people who come into to this area of science and are female. But it's just that in the top positions you don't mm. see women. So yeah. we don't really have role models in that context. Yeah, that's hard. I forgot what the question was. Was it like being a woman in science? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I really should not have been drinking that wine. Um, Yeah, I think that kind of. uh, The other thing, the other thing that I would probably mention is we have all these conversations about, you know, that men are really responsible for lifting up women and helping them succeed. But I think that conversation is missing half of the population, you know. Women need to be supporting other women. Absolutely. And certainly in my experience um, in my career, 
the only challenges I've really felt have been from other women, not from men. It hasn't been that men aren't lifting us up. It's been that some women maybe are more um, focused on bringing other people down. Yeah. And I think think that's something, um, you know, just in society in general, women are taught to sort of, you know, compare themselves to each other and they have to battle for each other. And because there are less top positions for women, you sort of, if you want to be the woman in that top role, people might think that you've sort of got to tear some of the other women down. Yeah. Yeah. I find that so frustrating because I just, nothing gives me more pleasure than seeing my friends do well, like my colleagues succeed. And the thought that you need to bring someone else down to make yourself look better, it's actually flawed. Like it just makes you look bad. It makes you look mean. Yeah. Can't you just, uh, it's not always a competition. But I guess that's a lesson that each individual needs to learn from for themselves. Yeah, yeah. And I think like you were saying before with, you know, the people sort of say that, you know, men have to lift women up and stuff. I think, you know, men have to be part of the conversation. It definitely can't change without men, mm-hmm. but absolutely women have to be driving it as well. Mm-hmm. And and hopefully if, as you're saying, like, you know, about 55% of people in your field are women, maybe when those top positions start retiring, they'll get filled by all the women and hopefully we'll see see some change. <laughs> but I'm hoping. Yes, yeah. I'm hoping. Yeah, but it means some people need to retire yeah. or, or die. Um, did, I, uh, did I say that? I did. Did you? Did you? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, and I wanted to ask as well, you do a lot of engagement on social media with people outside of the science community, um, which, according to my cousin, is very, is sort of fairly unusual that, you know, a lot of scientists tend to, you know, focus on the science and maybe not so much the social media and, um, you know, talking to people outside of the science community. So why have you chosen to make that such a part of your career? I think it's absolutely critical for us to be sharing science in a way that is that makes sense that you know that is approachable that isn't scary and intimidating we have so much demonization of science in the media today that of course people are going to be afraid of science being presented in a way that is unapproachable Mm -hmm. I think Um, As scientists, we have a duty to be communicating the research that we're doing, but I think we also have a duty to try and um, share science more generally in a way that people can understand. And if we can do that, we can go a small way into improving our society as a whole. I get really frustrated by the misinformation that I see on social media. Yeah. How many people share it meaning really well? You know, they'll see that, um, I don't know, eating this flower extract will make you cure cancer. And I can understand how seeing that you want to share that because it will, you know, you want to help your your loved ones, right? Yeah. It's interesting information. But if you don't fact check and you share yeah. this, I don't think people realise the power that they have. Like if I share one piece of misinformation, I know that there's a, you know, there's some people who will trust me and say, okay, if Leela's shared it, then I'll share it too. And then they'll, their friends will share it because they'll think the same thing about their friends. And suddenly there's like hundreds of thousands of people who suddenly yeah. will believe this piece of misinformation simply because they trust their friends. And yeah. in today's society, we trust our friends more than we trust the media. So we really need to be helping spread 
positive messages about science and educating people about the the, the realities of, of of science. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the like crazy things about that is so often people share articles after just reading the title. Like people won't even necessarily read the whole thing. They'll just read the title and go, I agree with that title or I find that interesting. I'm going to share that now. Yes. And then the content will have like the opposite thing in the, yeah. bottom, in the conclusion or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a huge bugbear of mine. I've been guilty of it too in the past. So I've had to teach myself to like make sure I read every single bit before I share it because I don't want to be sharing something which is, you know, can be misconstrued. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, working in an area such as you do, do you find that you're able to switch off when you get home from work or do you sort of, you know, you see somebody do something and your brain goes into, oh, why might that be happening and look at, analyse everything from a neuroscience perspective? I think it's a little bit of both. I think yeah. it's a little bit of both. Certainly when I have loved ones who might be behaving a little bit erratically or strangely or if they're angry, I try and think about what has made them behave that way. And, for example, if they've been really stressed for like a couple of months, we know that chronic stress physically changes the brain and it physically makes you um, more aggressive. It actually makes part of the brain involved in aggression and emotions expand. This part of the brain is called the amygdala. So knowing these things, I can say, okay, this person's more aggressive because they've been stressed it's not their fault fundamentally. It's their brain trying to cope with the situation. Mm-hmm. They're not a bad person. It's okay. And knowing that means that I can look at these situations and not judge. I can just say, you know, this is not their fault and maybe even give them some advice about how yeah. to this. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think that's, you know, a really, a really good way to use it. It's like a small little superpower. <laughs> I understand what's going on in your brain so I can help you. <laughs> Um, and as well, like a lot of, you know, different occupations have like sort of their own sense of humour or maybe get desensitised to some of the stuff that they work on. Mm-hmm. Is there that type of thing in neuroscience? Do you have, is there a neuroscience sense of humour or do you get desensitised to things because of what you do? Um, I think we just get desensitised to the kind of work that we're doing. And, yeah. yeah, I feel like I probably couldn't even say what I'm desensitised to now because I think a lot of people would be totally alarmed um which is not great for a podcast sorry <laughs> <laughs> I want to leave you on your toes there and not tell you that's totally <laughs> fair <laughs> um and where do you want your your career to go from here is there an area that you want to research in the future. Oh my God, did have you done the thing with the fish oil yet? Is that still something you're looking at? Oh, um, so in my PhD, I discovered, and in my honours in my PhD, I found that this natural molecule yeah. could um, basically regenerate nerves in the skin, at least in in a rat. We couldn't, we didn't have money to test this in humans, so we don't know if yeah. it works in humans. But anyway, I found this natural protein that can regenerate nerves. And that protein is found in fish. So technically, technically, you could make a fish extract with this protein <laughs> and help people. So 
Maybe, maybe I have, maybe I have. Maybe, yeah. maybe yeah. in the anyway. future you can see if it works on humans. Yeah, that would be great. But I guess the nature of research is if you don't have funding to finish answering your question, that doesn't happen. And yeah. it's it's frustrating because there are so many brilliant research projects that have done been done around the world that no one would ever know about that could have potentially helped people, helped humanity. Yeah. Because there wasn't the work to finish carrying it through. Yeah. Yeah, that's really unfortunate, but you know, hopefully, hopefully some of the stuff will get through, and we'll be able to see some really cool, cool things coming out in the future. Um, now we're getting sort of towards the end here, but I like to ask a random question um, towards the end of the podcast. So my question for you is: If you had the power to shrink any one object and carry it around with you in your pocket. What object would you choose? Ooh. Mm. It's a really hard one. That's difficult. Yeah. Um, cheese. I love cheese and it would just be great to have pocket cheese if I could just take it with me everywhere, you know, just <laughs> yeah, take it in my pocket. and. You know you could just get normal cheese and cut it smaller? <laughs> <laughs> So you have oh, that power. Mom. You have that power, Leela. You have <laughs> cheese. Cheese is an important part of my life. I really, I couldn't oh, without it. And if I had pocket cheese, I, that would be great. But you know what? That is revolutionary. I could cut up the cheese and I could keep it in my pocket. Thank you so much, Chelsea. This has been a revolutionary conversation for me tonight. I'm glad I could help. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just like a little Ziploc bag. Yeah, yeah. Feel snacky. Yeah, yeah. And it has to it has to be in a snap like that. It has to be sterile. Probably need yeah. a pair of gloves as well so I can like yeah. not get any germs on it. Yeah, That'd especially like in the lab. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do their science and eat in the same space. And it's only kind of in recent years that we don't do that anymore. Remember when I started um, in medical research, which was over over a decade ago, ooh, hmm. yeah, over a decade ago, um, yeah, people would kind of eat and do research in the same space, which is super scary considering you might be working with some toxic things. Yeah. And <laughs> oh, my goodness. Times, times have changed. Times really have changed. I can't imagine you sort of just sitting there with your whatever. Your cheese. Yeah. With your cheese, just a whole bowl of cheese. You know what I used to do when I was younger? I, When I was in high school, I would come home from school and I would steam up, like, almost a whole broccoli, like so much broccoli, and cover it in grated cheese, and that oh. would be my afternoon snack. I had that, like, a couple of days ago, actually. <laughs> Delicious. I, like I love broccoli. You're basically my soul sister. We just didn't know it until we had this conversation. I think so. This mm. is... It's perfect. I love it. <laughs> and um, my final question for you today, which is one that I ask everybody that comes on the podcast, the show is called Loud and Seemingly Confident because that's how I once described myself. Do you consider yourself a confident person? Yes. Yes, I do. I have moments where I don't, but then I have moments when I do. Mixed bag. Yeah, that's mm. fair. Yeah. I think a lot of people, I've, I've had a very, yeah, mixed bag of, of 
answers to that question. There's been a couple of just, nope, I'm not <laughs> confident at all. And a couple of people like, yes, absolutely, I'm a confident person. And then most are sort of in the middle of, you know, sometimes I feel confident, sometimes I don't. Yeah. Um, I think it kind of just depends on the space that I'm working in. Like if I'm meeting new people for the first time, Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had that conversation before about women in science and stereotypes. And I know that I'm going to have to prove myself, then, yeah, I'll probably feel a bit less confident because I know what's coming and it's just a bit demoralising. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I find myself, like, if, if I'm with a group of people that I know and there's one new person... I can very easily be like, hey, how's it going? And like pull them into the conversation. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I'm that one person who doesn't know anybody, I just like shrink away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I don't know anyone. I don't know how to engage. Yeah. Yeah, it's super, it's super hard. I think it's something that we have to kind of teach ourselves to do if we don't do it naturally. And something that I've been trying to do over a long period of time. I have this thing where I, I now meet and you try and meet a new person every month. It ends up being every couple of months, but, you know, like I'll have like an after-work drink or a coffee, a lunchtime mm-hmm. coffee with someone and just try and make a new friendship, you know, find out what we've got in common and, and just see, if, you know, if there could be a new friendship formed there. And through that it's taught me a lot about, you know, to be confident in yourself and to, to also reach out to other people and to learn how to have conversations with new people it's been really life-changing for me and I feel like I've got the most rich and beautiful network of people around me now just that I adore that I've only happened to meet because I've put myself out there yeah wow that's Mm. really cool have you been able to do that with COVID yeah because it's not as much you know standing around in bars and things yeah no um I have met a couple of people from having like zoom calls yeah. Yeah. So I've only that's only I've only had met two new people in that context, but definitely need to do more once we yeah. can return to normal. And 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 we kind of are functioning a bit as normal down here. Yeah. Like, yeah. Same up here in Canberra. Yeah. yeah. My family are all in Melbourne, and you know I'll I'll say to them like I'm going to a friend's house tomorrow, and they're like you're what? Because they just yeah can't yeah. do anything. Yeah. But, I can say it now because this won't come out for a few weeks, but I ordered my sister some donuts today. So oh. on Monday, some vegan donuts should arrive at her door because I am a good sister. Ah, you are the best sister. <laughs> sugar makes, well, sugar basically makes you feel better. It's exactly. It's releasing hormones in this reward pathway in our brain, which makes us feel good. So you're actually basically making her feel good. So. Yeah. It's medicine. Yeah, it's Mr. medicine. Mr. of the year yeah. right here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for coming on. This has been really fascinating and been awesome to talk to you. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. No worries. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Please subscribe and rate us, leave a review. It really helps other people get to see this. You can follow me on Instagram at Chelsea J. Heaney, or you can follow the podcast at Loud and Seemingly Confident, both on Instagram and Facebook. Leela, where can people find out more about you? They can find me on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at The Rock at Scientist, which is spelled R-O-C-K at A-T Scientist, which is a bit random. I don't work with rockets. You don't work with rockets at all, yeah. (laughs) People say, like, you're a, um, you know, it's not rocket science or it's not, um, you know, 
you know, brain surgery, but you've got brain science. So Right, that's right. Nickname actually came about from um, one of my friends, Emily. We were working in the lab and she was like, Leela, you rocket science. So ah. like, you're a rocket scientist, which is where it came from. So Emily, Emily's handiwork. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here, Leela, and everybody else. We'll see you next week. Thank you. See ya. everyone thanks for listening to another episode of loud and seemingly confident just wanted to let you all know that this episode is going to be the last of our sort of season as i go off and find some more interesting people to interview but we will be back in no time while you wait go back and listen to some of your favorite episodes listen to any that you've missed and head over to our instagram where you can answer all of the random questions that i ask at the end of each episode thanks so much guys look forward to seeing you in a few weeks Ooh.